0: Sandra Enriquez. Sandra is an assistant professor of history and the director of public history emphasis at UMKC. She is a native of Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and immigrated to the U.S. with her family in 2000. Uh, Sandra has a B.A. in history with a minor in Spanish, an M.A. in U.S.-Mexico border history with a minor in public history, and a Ph.D. in history from the University of Houston. Sandra's research and teaching interests are in X and Latinx history, Urban history, borderlands, social movements, and public history locally. She, along with her students at UMKC, began the Latinx KC Oral History Project, a project geared to collecting, preserving, and disseminating oral histories of the Latinx community in the area, and is developing an exhibit on the legacy of the Guadalupe Center. She's also the co-editor of a forthcoming digital project on Kansas City activism. Give it up for Sandra
1: everyone I just first want to say thank you uh, for being here and I want to thank my fellow presenters Hakima and Angela and of course Nick and Wendy and I'm really excited to be here this is my first time uh, coming to an open table and I'm going to put a timer to myself because I'm going to try to fit in a semester's worth of information in 10 minutes if you can believe that so I hope we can do it uh, but thank you for having, for coming today, and um, this is a very important dialogue that everyone needs to have, and I am really excited to hear today's conversations. Um, I wanted to start off saying that gentrification tends to be a very new thing, right? We hear all about it all the time. We see it happening here in KC. We see it happening in the Bay Area. We see it happening in Chicago, New York. All in all, we hear gentrification thrown around in our day-to-day conversations all the time. Uh, we hear about kind of the "quote-unquote" up-and-coming areas, the um, the fact that people are revitalizing areas that were historically old, right? Uh, but as a as an urban historian myself, um, I see that gentrification is not new. That gentrification is deeply rooted in history and a history of the United States that is oftentimes ugly and and you know full of discrimination and racism and oppression. And so I want to talk today about how we can tie gentrification to historic events and historic happenings in in our history and how gentrification, um, it's the effects and results and manifestations of historic uh, racial and class inequality in the United States. So in order to understand uh, these historical connections of gentrification, I like to always tell my students that I like to define things. So I'm going to give you a or aversion somewhat of what I I tell my students gentrification is. Um, Sometimes people, uh, the the term gentrification is very conflated, right? Uh, People think that gentrification simply means renewal or revitalization, but that oftentimes leaves uh, communities of color out of the picture, especially those that have been working hard to maintain their community for so long. And so for me, gentrification is more of a process in which higher income or privileged groups uh, move into or invest into lower income neighborhoods that are historically, that historically have been disinvested communities um, and these uh, investments are made for capital gain. In addition, these processes force uh, displacement of existing residents due to inflation of property prices and taxes, and ultimately they alter the cultural character and landscape of this particular neighborhood. More often than not, these neighborhoods are communities of color, working class uh, communities, uh, which again ties us to the legacies of racial and class inequality and oppression to this country. So to understand um, gentrification in this particular definition then, allows us to really connect this process to the longer history of the United States, uh, beyond our understandings of gentrification in the late 20th and 21st century. Um, So gentrification is connected to obviously the uh, the colonialist past of this country, the removal of Native Americans uh, from their ancestral lands for the game of American settlers. We can connect it to the removal of Mexican Americans in the Southwest uh, from their properties and lands that they own uh, for the means of manifest destiny uh, during the the US-Mexico War in 1848. We can connect gentrification to the legacy of segregation in this country and to the destruction of communities of color like historic African-American neighborhoods, Chinatowns, Latinx barrios like um, Chavez Ravine here uh, pictured, and other immigrant quote-unquote ghettos uh, for the purposes of urban renewal projects of the 30s and 40s, uh, construction of stadiums, freeways, among others, uh, other public venues that benefit often the privileged populations and not the communities that have existed. Um, and so. We can't turn the art away from these uh, particular historic happenings uh, because removing gentrification from these uh, colonialist and racist past is very dangerous and it will only continue to exacerbate tensions between these communities, the communities of color, and whoever is the incoming privileged person. So coming to terms with these deeper roots of gentrification also allows us to recognize that there have been discriminatory practices and laws in the country that have, f- have facilitated gentrification today. And so city founders and developers and planners segregated cities from their inception, right? And um, and neglected this these areas for over the, over across the centuries. And as a result, these areas became, um, were found to be, quote, dirty, like dirty, unsanitary, backwards, antiquated, et cetera. And this is not a, a result of, you know, of the residents themselves, but rather the disinvestment of politicians and of public and private interests. Because, like I said, I have 10 minutes, and I don't know how many more or longer I have remaining. I'm going to kind of go quickly, I have five minutes, to go over uh, very important um, laws and policies that really affected uh, our, our, our perspectives of gentrification today in the 20th century. The first one, um, this investment, uh, you know, turned into the practice of redlining, which was an appraisal criterion established by the Homeowners Loan Corporation in 1933, which was a component of FDR's New Deal policies. Uh, based on this criteria, the HL- HOLC made maps of cities, like the one here in Kansas City. Oh, not yet. Uh, if you can see, this is Kansas City, actually, and I know it's kind of tiny, I apologize. Um, and then outlined neighborhoods and colors. So. The blue ones were the optimal neighborhood you wanted to be, green as well, Uh, yellow was in transition, and the red ones were the the dense aging and uh, the ones that were mostly housing large communities of color at that time, so already the disinvested uh, areas. And these maps were made uh, based on desirability and notions of a safe investment. So then banking and lending institutions would either approve or reject homeowner loans based on where all the properties were located. So as African-Americans and other minorities uh, uh, tried to get some loans, they could not. And even if people wanted to get uh, a loan to buy a property in the red areas, banks would not do that because it was not a good investment. And so as you can see, redlining thus exacerbated the declining of particular neighborhoods that now are quote unquote the up and coming neighborhoods. The second one, ooh, I got louder all second, out of a sudden, um, is uh, blockbusting, or as I like to call it, just panicked white flight from urban neighborhoods. And so through this practice, uh, realtors and realtor speculators would show up um, after a rumor of having uh, an African American family move into a particular white area. And so realtors and, and speculators would go on, like, door to door and tell the homeowners that, that because a black family was moving into the neighborhood, that property values were going to decrease and that the neighborhood essentially was entering a period of decline that, you know, was not going to come back from it. And so, of course, this panicked people, right? And so they, they kind of rushed to sell their homes at below market pla- uh, Prices, And the more and more people started to sell their houses, the more and more people left. And as more properties were on sale, obviously prices of uh, property values did decrease. A tax uh, base decreased as well. And then, you know, white families left even before a, a family of color or a black family came into live into that residence. And so from there, uh, this opened an opportunity for for the African American middle class to come into certain neighborhoods, uh, and to buy properties. But this wasn't—it it turned out to be more of a burden than anything. Um, black homeowners had to pay anywhere between eighty to one hundred percent more in home mortgages, taxes, and interest rates uh, than their white counterparts, and placing a burden—and you know—it began to place a burden in these communities. And so black families kept it. Found it very difficult to maintain these homes, and as they started to deteriorate, um, they were unable to get uh, other homes or, excuse me, loans to be able to fix their communities. Again, these communities were already let, redlined. Banks were not making investment in those areas. So again, it's a spiral of um, of you know blighted areas and making these blighted areas. So Kansas City, um, obviously, dealt with redlining and, bl- and blockbusting. Um, but we can also tie these um, experiences uh, to JC Nichols. So we have him to thank for the hypersegregation of uh, Kansas City, even to present day. Uh, Nichols's work started in the early 19-teens, and, um, and, and today we still feel the ramifications, right? A century later, we can still see his, uh, his work on our urban landscape. So between 18, 1908, excuse me, 1940, in the 1940s, Nichols envisioned the construction of exclusive neighborhoods um, for whites. So he built dozens of subdivisions across the Kansas City area, including uh, the Country Club Plaza, Mission Hills, Armor Hills, Crestwood, Prairie Village, and Leewood on the Kansas side. And Nichols enforced uh, very strict rules on neighborhoods that, uh, and how they should function, who was allowed to live in them as well. And so he enforces the restrictions and restrictive covenants, such as the one on the screen. And if you can't read it in the back, I will read it really quickly. Uh, it reads, "quote Oh no, <laughs> I'm almost done. I promise. I, this is like a theme, a, a topic that I really care about, so that's why I'm going off already. Anyway, so um, so the the covenant, uh, the restrictive covenant, reads, um, quote None of the said land or portions thereof shall be ever sold, conveyed, transferred, devised, leased, rented." Or use, owned, or occupied by any person of the Negro blood. End quote. And he also goes on to say about other um, other ethnic groups like Syrians, Armenians, and Jewish um, as well. And so these restrictive covenants obviously prevented people from living into areas, and thus created what we know today as a truce wall. Right? If we have these restrictive covenants, uh, that means that essentially. Certain populations, particularly African Americans, could not move into certain areas of Kansas City. And again, once we go east of Truce, we see, you know, disinvested communities, et cetera. And yes, these laws have been overturned, but we can't deny that the effects are still seen today. Uh, We can't really turn our backs on on these laws and housing policies in Kansas City and, and the United States because they did make gentrification possible. Uh, this history has made it possible for privileged groups to move into areas that have been neglected by the private and public uh, interests at a bargain price, and so it would be for my wish, you know, uh, for people to kind of know these uh, these histories to understand why there are tensions in these particular areas when white folks move into uh, gentrifying communities. Um, Can we prevent gentrification? Perhaps not, right? As long as there's capital investment and disinvested communities, we're gonna continue to go down this road. But we need to grapple these historic uh, roots of gentrification in order to be able to understand why there has been disinvestment, and in order to move forward and mend into our future, right, and try to make sure that we find strategies and solutions to avoid displacement and inequality by uh, including people uh, from the community and trying to see uh, which are the best ways and and policies that we can implement, not only at the local level or at the neighborhood level, but at the national level. I'm gonna stop there because I can keep going on forever, so thank you. (laughs)
0: Angela Martellaro. Uh, Angela is a real estate agent serving refugee and immigrant homebuyers for nearly five years. Prior to her current role, Angela was a social worker in Catholic Charities Refugee Resettlement Program in KCK. Angela also lived and worked at Holy Family Catholic Worker House, which provided meals and temporary shelter for homeless families. Through her work and research, she has intimate knowledge of the lack of quality affordable housing for a broad spectrum of the population, from the chronically homeless to low income workers. She's also a member of Surge KC, where she regularly agitates folks about housing-related issues. Give it up for Angela.
2: Um, Hi, everyone, I'm Angela. Um, I'm really grateful for the wonderful framework that you just laid for me. Um, I'm gonna start um, also with maps, and I'm gonna run through a lot of real estate data, um, so just hang tight. A lot of these links will be sent out later after the presentation, so you can kind of play around with the data yourself if you're into that. I really am, so I'm gonna try not to go over my time. Um, But this is uh, another one of the maps that Sandra mentioned. Um, This is historical data from 1939. This is a security map from the Home Owners Loan Corporation, which, um, as she mentioned, is part of the federal government's New Deal program. Um, And I put some uh, lines on here for everyone to get their bearings. So Troost is right here, 27th Street is here. Um, And as you can see, almost all of Kansas City is red or yellow, right? So that would be the hazardous or declining areas where you were not able to get a home loan or home loans were very, very limited. Um, You can see some blue-green down here. Can anyone tell me what that is? Where's that? It's the Country Club Plaza, actually. So yeah, Um, you can see that all of the money is starting to go this direction. Um, So these maps were created using um, data sheets. What they did is they sent appraisers and real estate folks out to 250 cities, including Kansas City, and they would fill out data sheets. um, And just the questions on them were already very um, uh, discriminatory or uh, biased. So I'm going to show you one of the questionnaires really quickly, and I know it's hard to see. but. This is from what we would now consider to be the west side in Kansas City. So back in 1939, the questions that they have are class and occupation, wage earners and low-class laborers, percentage of foreign families, 50%, what nationalities, Mexicans and mixture, um, and then it has the percentage of quote-unquote Negro in that area, which would be 5% at this time. Um, And then it goes into, from demographic information, into the structure of the buildings that are present, so how many... uh, Apartment buildings, how many single-family homes, what are rates of owner occupancy compared to rental rates, Um, what are sales prices, sales demand on this line down here says none. I know it's hard to see, but you can play with this stuff later. I'll send you the link. Um, But they have, for every neighborhood, they have these data sheets, and then they also include written paragraph descriptions about the neighborhood. So what I'm focusing on tonight, um, as we move forward in time to some current data, we're going to be focusing on the area around 27th and Troost. So there's this little yellow square in the middle, um, surrounded by red. Um, These maps don't exactly match up to current zip codes or neighborhood boundaries, but generally this area would be 64109 Beacon Hill Longfellow-ish. Is everyone kind of familiar with where we're talking about? Okay, so I pulled some quotes from some of these um, uh, security map data sheets. Um, So again, this is in 1939. At this point, all of these areas that we would consider Midtown, Hyde Park, Westport, were already in extreme decline at this time. Um, So (laughs) it says, a small area built up on a speculative basis some 30 to 35 years ago. So that would be turn of the century. We're talking about the Longfellow neighborhood right here, Um, in 1900, stands out as superior to the surrounding property, but is witnessing little or no demand for property, has maintained an orderly appearance, but is due to decline rapidly because of its location, surrounded by old and poor property, also commercial encroachments. It is also going to rooming houses. So these data sheets don't just describe how it is, but they're making predictions of this area is going to decline, so don't lend money here. And you can also see Discrimination against um, apartment buildings (laughs) and rooming houses. Um, Another quote from this general area. Threatened with Negro encroachment from the north, the colored section having extended to 27th Street east of Paseo. It is a spotty section with many cheap bungalows and cheaply built two-story structures. Very little demand for property in the area, but it is a fair rent district. So again, they're basically saying, this is a place where landlords should buy property. Um, and these, these maps and these data sheets became the basis for real estate for the rest of the century and into today. Um, because, as you'll see in a minute, these, these maps, even if we're talking about health outcomes, if we're talking about racial demographics, they're gonna look basically exactly the same today. Also, in these areas, Um, Rates of owner occupancy were only between 30 and 55 percent. So half to more than half of the population in these areas were renters. What does that mean? It means most people did not own their own homes. They were not responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of those homes. When we talk about neighborhoods falling into disrepair, in a lot of cases, it was not the, like, the people who lived there were not able to maintain the property because it didn't belong to them. So... um, Here's some current data. um, This map is from the Kansas City, Missouri Health Department. Um, They've not been officially released yet, so I do have to give a quick disclaimer that any interpretation of this data is mine. It's not coming from the Health Department. Um, But what it shows is um, life expectancies from 2011 to 2015, and then 2012 to 2016. And I have one that's more zoomed in so we can really see. So the dark blue. has the worst, like the lowest life expectancies, and as it gets lighter, life expectancy increases, okay? So I've pointed out three zip codes where there's been a dramatic change. So on this side, um, 64109 that I circled in red, changed to lighter blue, right? So life expectancies went up during this time period. These two other zip codes, 64126 and 64129, life expectancy decreased during this time period. Everyone with me? Okay. So um, we can't necessarily just look at this map and say why that happened, but what I did is I compared it to um, home sales during the same time period. I know this is a table of numbers, but just stay with me. So in 64109, remember, the one that was in decline back in the 1930s, um, in 2011, the average price of a home was about 75000 in 2016, the average home price was 156000 So it literally doubled in that five-year period, and life expectancies went up. Do we think it was black people moving from the east side and buying these houses and having better health outcomes? Probably not. When people talk about wanting to erase the truce divide or break down the truce wall, I, I'm going to say when I look at this data, when you look at these maps, that's not what's happening. I think that the lower income and like uh, predominantly black communities are being pushed further east. Let's look at my table again. Um, just to make sure the data didn't somehow get you know, messed up by an outlier property, if we look at the median home prices during that same time period, in 2011, the median home price in that zip code was t- about 27,000. In 2016, it was 122,000. So in a very short time period, home prices are skyrocketing. But again, I compared a bunch of different zip codes to make sure it wasn't you know this is just normal market trends or something like that in six four one one zero, which is very nearby, home prices went up about fifty thousand no about forty thousand from one ten to one forty nine That is an increase, but it's not as dramatic of an increase. Home prices were fairly stable in that area, and health outcomes did not change. okay You can also compare the median home prices again, it did increase, but it's, it's not quite on the scale as 64109. 64127, I can't go back, just so you know where we're talking about. 64127 is this dark blue one, so health outcomes were poor and remained poor. Um, the average home price in 2011 was about 14,000, and in 2016 it was about 27,000. Again, that is an increase, but if you're looking at houses under $40,000, there's not a lot of difference between a $20,000 house and a $35,000 house. They're generally not gonna be habitable for owner-occupants, they're mostly gonna be investors. Um, A lot of them are in really bad condition. So to me, this doesn't really say that there was any change in home values. Um, 64129, I'm just gonna keep going back and forth. (laughs) So this is one of the ones that had um, a decrease in life expectancy, this really big one here. Um, so, average home price was at 33, then it went up to 53. Again, not those are still not really great quality, highly in demand homes, right, at that price point. And health outcomes decreased. 64126, same story. They went from 17,000 to 34,000. That's still not a house that an owner occupant is going to buy, you know, to live with their family. Um, Oh, whoops. Oh, it went away. What did I do? I pressed the wrong button. How am I doing on time? One minute? Just the table again. Twelve seconds. Okay. Oh, that's perfect. So, um, <laughs> so again, there are a lot of ways that you can look at this data and interpret it, but <laughs> I'm going to take one more minute. But um, from my personal experience as a real estate agent, when I go into homes in the northeast and on the east side that are in those price ranges, twenty, thirty dollars homes, they, I mean, has anyone ever been in a house like that? Okay. So you see children's names on the wall with their heights marked, right? You see um, abandoned toys. You see things that indicate that families lived here, that people lived here, but you also see water damage, mold, roaches, fleas, you see a lot of sorrow and a lot of poverty in these abandoned properties, HUD homes, foreclosed homes. And for someone, by the time a first time home buyer buying a completely renovated, beautiful home, by the time they're putting an offer in on that property, all of the suffering and all of the displacement that made that possible has already happened. So when we see, I'm gonna go to my table one more time, when we see 75 to 156 in 5 years the people that are buying those houses in 2016, 17 and now in 18 there you know people ask well who's being displaced of course you don't know because it happened when all of those homes were vacant as encroachment as wealthy encroachment starts to happen and push people further to the east side so with that i'm going to pass it off to Hikima to talk about a little bit more Personal story.
0: All right, we've got Hakima Tafunzi Payne. She's a KC Mo resident, has a bachelor's of nursing and a master's in nursing education. Ms. Payne is the executive director of Uzazi Village, a nonprofit dedicated to decreasing perinatal health disparities in communities of color. She's an editor for Clinical Lactation Journal and sits on the board of the National Association for Professional and Peer Lactation Supporters of Color. Ms. Payne serves on her local fetal infant mortality review board and cares deeply about increasing the number of midwives of color and improving lactation rates in the African American community through increasing the number of IBCLCs of color. Give it up for Hakima.
3: Good evening, mama Hakima. Uh, My story is a little different, even though I am an academic nurse and researcher, I have no charts to show you because my part of the presentation is to share my life story. So if you had trouble with one semester in 10 (laughs) minutes, try 55 years. (laughs) So this is my life along the Truce corridor. So I was born in 1962 at General Hospital number two. Anybody want to take a guess why I was born at General Hospital number two? (laughs) Number one was for whites, yes. So uh, that was the world I was born into, a segregated Kansas City. So I've been a resident of Kansas City, Missouri my entire life. Lived along the Truce Corridor for most of my life. Uh, You know, I'm the executive director of Uzazi Village. I teach OB for a local nursing school. Also, I'm a midwifery student. I was at a birth all night last night, but I went home and slept all day, so I'm good now. (laughs) I'm a doctoral student, uh, working on uh, um, a doctorate in nursing education, and I have uh, nine kiddos of my own, so I'm serious about being passionate (laughs) about birth and the politics of birth and the social health justice of birth. So, my lived experience of gentrification. So, I've seen, talking about those five years that Angela just talked about in charts, I've seen more change along the truce corridor in the past five years than I saw in the previous 50. And that's certainly borne out in those charts, in the story that those charts tell. Uh, This is my definition of gentrification uh, because I'm an academic nurse I deal in the lived experience of women of color around birth. That's where a lot of my research comes from. And so much of the poor health outcomes that we see in maternal and infant health in the African-American community and other communities of color are really centered uh, on place on those lived spaces where that folks inhabit so gentrification um, in my eyes has an absolute direct impact on health outcomes and again as Ange- Angela showed uh, you can see it in life expectancies so it's certainly not just concentrated in maternal infant health it's across the life spectrum uh, both genders all genders uh, so this is my formed definition because I'm researcher, I get to define stuff. Uh, My definition of gentrification is the cultural, economic, spiritual, and psychosocial violence and oppression visited upon communities of color, mostly low income, when affluent dominant culture people move into their communities to advantage themselves while displacing those who previously inhabited those communities. So, there you go. (laughs) That's my definition, and that's certainly how I see it play out uh, in real life. It's kind of surreal to have this lived experience of watching a community I've lived in my entire life change right before my very eyes and not for the good. (laughs) I see nothing positive and nothing redemptive about gentrification, though lots of people would like to frame it that way. There is nothing, let me say it again, nothing in my eyes that is redemptive about it or positive. I often ask the question, uh, who does it constitute improvement for? I know it's not for me. When I see a bright, shiny new building go up, some condos, a loft, some fancy boutique grocery store, that's not for me. I know it's not for me, nor is it for the others in my community who inhabit it. So the Though some beneficial things occur, they're certainly not intended to benefit me or my community, and I say me because uh, I currently live in Squire Park, uh, which is an area not too far from here. I think it's boundaried by 39th Street to Armor, truce to Basel, so it's very small, full of historic homes. It's very much gentrified, and it's very much involved right now in uh, pushing Um, an agenda of exclusionary zoning, which is a frequent tool of gentrifiers. Uh, So they're pushing uh, municipal zoning um, to make uh, Squire Park uh, new building permits can only be issued by single-family dwellings or that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's a practice known as exclusionary zoning, And certainly it's designed to preserve those areas uh, for a certain type of buyer, home buyer. The lived impacts of gentrification. So uh, it's important for folks to know, because as Angela pointed out, the negative impacts of gentrification are largely invisible to gentrifiers. You move into this spiffy new home, and you think, oh, this is all good. What's the problem? It's because all the bad shit happened before you got there. So you missed it. So this is what that looks like. Uh, homelessness and displacement, the rising cost of living, as, again, things like, I don't know, poodle grooming and boutique grocery stores move in. <laughs> things that you White folks, y'all know how y'all about y'all dogs. <laughs> uh, Educational divestment, let me dwell here on this one a little bit because often one of the first things gentrifiers do is they uh, move in and they actually divest from the public schools which our public school system has been challenged for quite some time and gentrifiers often move in and start their own schools or they send their kids to private schools or they start a new charter school and that all represents a type of investment from the existing Community schools, so I often hear from gentrifiers that that they want their children to have the advantage of living in diverse neighborhoods Well only to a point (laughs) point. they certainly don't want their children sitting next to black children in the public schools Uh, That's obvious Uh, Loss of cultural norms to dominant culture centric norms loss of familiarity and normalcy for the folks who previously inhabited those communities, criminalization of presence and mobility. That bears some explanation. So one of the things I've gotten to witness up close and personal are all, because I live on Facebook, all those so-called community pages and uh, yes, I read what you write. (laughs) I don't speak up much, because I'm lurking. I'm a researcher, so I'm observing. But I hear what goes on on those so-called neighborhood pages, and how black presence is criminalized, and how often the police are called uh, on black residents from essentially being in the space. Uh, So that becomes uh, very normalized. Uh, living separately and unequally in the same space. So we'll see what dominant culture people often call diversity (laughs) is really two communities inhabiting the same spaces without ever interacting. So that kind of diversity is fucking worthless in my opinion, but (laughs) who's asking me? So uh, mental stress that comes with the lived experience of uh, that racial and systemic inequity and inequality day in and day out and acute and chronic health impacts that ultimately uh, result in shorter lifespans for african-americans so again it's all bad news so here are some strategies to reduce the damage of gentrification Seek to actively unpack your own racism. Yes, you got some. Uh, Become aware of the negative impacts of your presence on others. So just because you're there doesn't make it wonderful. In fact, you're probably making it just the opposite of wonderful. Participate in the neighborhood you move into. Notice I didn't say get out, (laughs) because that's an option, (laughs) but I'm not gonna say that. I think that oversimplifies the problem. I think if you're there, now you're there, okay, deal with it. Mm -hmm. This is the way you're going to deal. Participate in the neighborhoods you move into, get to know your neighbors of color, real engagement. Mm -hmm. Send your children to the local schools. If they're good enough for your neighbor's children, surely they're good enough for yours. And if they're not, do the work to make them better. Uh, Shop local, frequent the neighborhood businesses, especially those owned by people of color. When you call the police, make sure it's warranted. None of this walking while black, breathing while black, uh, which is often what most of those calls are for. Uh, Join groups and activities that are already in place. Don't create your own for you and your kind, because that's what you do. And lobby City Hall to stop practices that promote gentrification and displacement, such as tax abatements that unfairly advantage the wealthy and things such as those exclusionary zoning policies, and support the work of Uzazi Village. All right. Thank you.
2: So now we're going to show you a short video um, from the Kansas City Star about uh, the neighborhood Beacon Hill. Um, Is everyone or is anyone familiar with Beacon Hill? You might have seen this video before if you went to uh, the surge meeting a couple months ago. but this is a really good example of how um, black and white folks trying to live in the same community end up living in two separate communities inhabiting the
4: same space. People ask us where we live, I tell them, you know, by 24th and Troost, you know, east of Truman Medical Center, and they give me a weird look, like, are you serious? And we're like, yeah, we're serious. And then try to explain you know the revitalization that has taken place how many people have decided to make the move and it has really changed the area my first thought was it's not a safe neighborhood a little bit scary but then i started to see uh, the development take place and the revitalization we had the opportunity to jump on the train for urban development we were excited to do it we went for it and built this house very happy, very excited, this area is phenomenal.
5: I grew up in this neighborhood. This neighborhood has always been home. Even though I have lived in different parts of the country, I'm always coming back here because this is home. The neighborhood has changed a lot. One thing that I don't particularly like about the neighborhood is the fact that with the character of the neighborhood changing, then it's actually, people are coming in, building homes that are pricing of the residents here out of the neighborhood. So it's extremely difficult for somebody to come in and build a four, $500,000 home, and then for the neighbors whose homes are nowhere near that amount to be able to compete with that and to be able to maintain their homes because it seems like there's pressure to push the current neighbors out of the neighborhood. I would guess probably within the next five or ten years, a large part of this neighborhood, it will change and it will look more like the suburbs. We don't have that neighborhood
6: family friendliness now that we used to have.
7: Yeah, we saw real potential over here, and of course we love the views and the convenience.
6: Truth is the
7: traditional dividing line. Our goal really is not to, is not to just move that line. We want to erase it. We want, you know, this is Beacon Hill is a very, very integrated neighborhood, very diverse. Uh, we have people from all all walks of life, uh, and that's one thing that we have really, we kind of take a little pride in it, and that's really been a goal of ours from the beginning. We don't have any intention of coming in here and and creating an isolated little enclave of anything. The goal was not so much to move that line. We didn't want to just move a little east of truce. We didn't want the line to move from truce to the Paseo. Uh, we believe that we can erase that line altogether.
3: One of the things we love about this
4: location is where it is. You're four minutes from the crossroads, you're four miles from the Nelson you have the advantage of any restaurant
3: you might be interested in is just a stone's throw away.
5: We've got nothing but good feelings about the the future of Beacon Hill and this whole area. uh, We know the people who are the developers. We know the people who are the architects. They're planning some really phenomenal facilities that I think will really brighten this whole place up. And like us, other people will make a statement about being in this neighborhood. I mean, it is a statement to build a, to build a home here and, and say, we're going to be three blocks east of Trust.
3: I think that's a shortened version. One of the things they don't say that I want you to understand is those folks with those uh, half a million dollar homes got a ten-year tax abatement uh, for building their homes there while their uh, low-income neighbors can expect about a 60 percent increase over time in their property taxes.
2: So on your uh, bulletin that everyone should have gotten when they walked in or on your table, um, we have three reflection questions for you to discuss with the folks that you're eating with or sitting with. Um, So how do you define gentrification? What factors influenced where you live now? And what enabled you to make that choice? And what do you see as the impact of the health and economic well-being of the original inhabitants of a community that has been gentrified? So we'll go ahead and give you about five minutes to discuss each question, um, and then we'll share back with the larger group.
1: All right, everyone, we're gonna get back to sharing what your dialogues and discussions and conversations have been at the table. So just a reminder, because there's a lot of you, make sure that you know, whenever you wanna share what your table discussed, uh, to shout. And then I will try to best, uh, as best, to concisely repeat your question or comment. Um, also, when you get up, please make sure you share your name so we can actually put, you know, a name to the face. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and ask the first question. Um, I think that both during this, um, during this discussion, we had different definitions about gentrification. And like I said, it's a conflated um, um, word right to define so I wanted to hear what some of you had mentioned uh, and how you all defined um, gentrification in your tables yes sir
8: um, my name is I go by Waji and Lion um, so I started off by describing that gentrification is not um, unique to the United States in particular um, nor is it related just to North America Europe But it's also all across the world. Um, I do see it as uh, an abuse, like uh, what Hakima said in her definition. I definitely agree with her. Um, Some people in my table have a little bit of different meaning to that. Uh, But the idea of uh, whether it's the government coming in. Kicking a whole bunch of group of people for its own development and its own uh, visitors from outside to just see one clean area and a whole bunch of people living in slums. Whether that's the case in Saudi Arabia or whether that's the case in India or whether that's the case in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I've, since I've traveled the world, I've seen it happen in many different places. And it's very sad to see it in a first-world country um, like the United States.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, thank you for your answer. Did everyone hear that? Kind of. So he mentioned that gentrification is not just a phenomena that is happening in the United States, but all across the world, right? And not just in the in the Western world, but in other areas as well. Um, and that you know, in a way, kind of replicates some of the particular forces that we discussed today. Does that best describe what you just mentioned? Very well indeed. Oh, great. Okay. So, anyone else wants to share what uh, their definition of gentrification is? Do you have your hand up up there? Yeah. Yes, that was a great one. Back there. Thank you. So the last two uh, definitions that we heard were mostly about people, right, and caring about people, not just thinking about uh, physical capital, right, land, etc. So we're gonna try to move on to our next question, and Angela will be taking care of that. Thank you.
2: Okay, so the second question that we had you discuss was what factors influenced where you live now And what enabled you to make that choice? What resources did you have? So who wants to share a little bit about their own personal home uh, or, I don't know, choice? Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, that's very true. This is something that affects the entire metro area. We focused a lot on Midtown tonight, just for the sake of time and uh, you know being able to show some data. But the movement of people and the movement of capital is what drives this whole process, right? That's how the suburbs were built, and that's why people are now moving back into the city and then into North Kansas City. If it wasn't profitable, it wouldn't happen. And
3: just so you know, you're the minority.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, Who else wants to share what factors influenced your decision about where you live now or what resources you had that were able to help you move there?
6: I think people don't admit that they that they are advantaged in a really lottery sort of way. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, you know, my husband happened to be these people's kid. You know, just you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, so now we have this great you know mm-hmm. house that we would never have been able to afford three years ago. You know, mm-hmm. so, and it's really like you're not super special. You know, it's just kind of like happening. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of angers me about Beacon Hill because it's not, it's deliberate. Mm -hmm. It's a deliberate placement of where we want investment and we have the tools to make investment happen anywhere. And we've simply chosen Mm -hmm. not to do it. Mm -hmm. And once you start to learn how Simple it is to make something happen like that. Like mm-hmm. literally, simply, it it will stress you out. Mm-hmm. When you start knowing too yeah. much. Mm-hmm. it really mm-hmm. is a burden for you to know so much. Yep. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for your comments. Um, generational wealth and inherited wealth is not something we were even able to touch on tonight, but that is a huge piece of this. Um, families of color have a disproportionate amount of their wealth um, tied up in property compared to white families that have a lot more diversity of investments like retirement accounts and and other things. Um, So thank you for bringing that up. But that doesn't mean that families of color don't have inherited wealth, but it's very disproportionate compared to white families. Um, Does anyone else want to share about your decision about where you live now, why you chose to live there? Yes, please. Can, Can you speak up a little louder?
7: Come <laughs> closer. I grew up in a neighborhood east of Beacon Hill. It was a new home when I was a child. I grew up with the neighbor, and all of their property values have gone down because of the Great Recession and all the other things. So people started moving back over there while we the area. So I decided to personally start buying in that neighborhood one house at a time. And I did that enough time to stop people from gentrifying the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So
2: that's that's awesome thank you so much for sharing that that good for you that's excellent um i know i know we're running short on time i just real quick i i would love for white folks who didn't share to really do some some self-reflection about truly what enabled you to live where you live now i'm a white real estate agent so i have a lot of resources at my disposal and i own that what i am a homeowner and all of the knowledge and resources that I had that enabled me to purchase my home um, is a lot more than most of my clients. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but I think it's really important for each of us. And when I say us, I mean white people who are homeowners, and including renters, depending on what neighborhood you live in. What really made it possible for you to live there that people of color don't have access to? All right,
3: I've got the last question, so we will move on to the last question real quickly. Uh, what do you see as the impact of the health and economic well-being of the original habit- inhabitants of a community that has been gentrified? So, uh, so this is a question about the health and economic impacts. So uh, what do you think that looks like? Remember, this is Mama Hakima here, so don't come with the bull.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Well, actually, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to let someone who hasn't spoken, since we're so limited on time. Whatever you were going to say would have been brilliant, I know. <laughs>
6: you know I'll, I'll yes? i lived in a place for 30 years, and this place is starting, I think, to get gentrified. And I what is the neighborhood? North historic, no, historic Northeast. Okay. So what I've seen is that people move in, and they're, they're complaining about the neighbors, and people are getting these code violations. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then they're having to spend a lot of money, when before nobody really cared. and now you know.
3: Okay. Well, that's a way to push them out. What's the health yeah. impact Or the, I guess that's an economic impact, an economic but impact. yes, the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you don't have a place to live that definitely has a health impact, but yes, this, these code violations, neighbors, incognito, low-key, calling the city on folks and having uh, them um, have these uh, code enforcements that go with exorbitant fees that that snowball and then they get more code violations and more fees and so yeah that's that's another way to push folks out What else Thanks for bringing that up that is how that happens yes um, I just want to add, this is kind of
6: from perspective when I <laughs>
3: That is so, so true. Um, We have a watchdog group that we work with that keeps an eye on uh, Jefferson City and all the legislation that passes through that affects and impacts women's reproductive health, and there is some scary stuff happening in Missouri. Not that it ever claimed to be a progressive state. I always say, (laughs) I always say, Missouri's trying its damnedest to be Kansas. All right, one more. All right, <laughs> one more. <laughs> yes.
7: <laughs> uh, we live in Blue Hills,
9: 59th Holland, and Okay. Uh, okay. We, uh, we rent, we moved there for, for the price, that's all we can afford, the uh, but uh, I talked to my neighbors and they're mostly older. And what I've seen is a lot of, you know, we've seen lady next, next door to me, Miss Guy, sweet sweet lady, she lived there since, before my parents were born, mm. and what she's seen, she can tell me stories about my house, and she has. <laughs> and she's told us how how all these uh, in in our neighborhood, you know, it's predominantly older folks, and what happens is these older folks die, and their kids don't want to don't want to deal with it or can't deal with it, and there's no one there, and so what happens? Well, property goes to the the highest bidder, mm-hmm. and then it gets turned into one of those low rent, churn out things that right. always turned over year after year. Right. And <laughs> You're losing the roots of the community and you mm-hmm. see uh, these folks who live here they love these places they're they're getting older they can't mm-hmm. keep it up and their kids they understand right and so you just get this turnover and there's there's not a soul there anymore there's not a soul in the neighborhood anymore you got a bunch of people who are transient just coming in and out mm-hmm. and i don't know i mean blue hills and the gentrified yet as much as some of these other places but Mm-mm. it could come got right. a lot of
3: Right, so it sounds like we've come full circle because we're back to that uh, uh, original statement made uh, earlier about um, uh, inherited properties and how those transfers don't take place and how familial wealth is lost when those transactions don't uh, occur. It's why we have such, That's largely explains why we have such a huge wealth gap between uh, the wealth of black families and the wealth of white families in this in this country. So uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your thoughts, for participating in this conversation.
4: Thank you so much. We so appreciate your time and effort and thoughtfulness that you put into the presentation, leading us in our conversations tonight. Um, Sometimes we get the question here at the open table, is this church? I didn't realize this was church. (laughs) Um, Yes, this is how we church. Um, uh, We try to take really seriously the two greatest commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. And this conversation is part of us loving our neighbors. So um, thanks for being part of that tonight. Um, November's coming. We can love our neighbors with our vote um, and our hands and our feet and our, our money. So I hope that we've given you some suggestions of ways you can do that tonight. Closing blessing. May God bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that we may live from deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of God's creation so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. Amen.